For so many years, I have relished this view, looking out at these legends, this star-studded crew. But a regular guest is not with us this year. He approached every game and his life without fear. We're thankful for 88 years of Bill Russell, this league's greatest champ, equal parts grit and hustle. Pause now and let silence alone fill the air. Bill's table this morning has one empty chair. The void left by Bill Russell is really hard to measure, right? I mean, we just heard the sound of Ernie Johnson trying to do it with poetry over All-Star Weekend. But Martenzi Johnson, we have asked you here because you've reported your own way in to the story of Bill Russell. And this is a story that really does touch everything from the evolution of basketball to the evolution of America itself. I mean, you lost one of the most decorated athletes of all time. You can start with the 11 championships in 13 seasons, which I can go out on a limb and say probably will never be matched again in NBA history. Mm -hmm. Those last two championships as a player coach, which again, outside of LeBron James, you probably will never ever see that again if LeBron wanted to do that. Olympic gold medalist, five-time MVP, 12-time All-Star. The, the accolades go on and on. Even Adam Silver called him the greatest champion of all team sports. Yes. So this is the guy that passed away. And then there's everything else that Russell did off the court. And that part, his activism, Martenzi, that might be even more profound. Pablo, this man was at the March on Washington. He was sitting next to Martin Luther King Jr. during his famous I Have a Dream speech. You know, I was here when Martin Luther King made that speech. I was in the audience. That seemed like so long ago. For us that were deeply involved, the changes were very slow. It's like walking down the street, one step at a time. He also ran an integrated basketball camp in Mississippi after the assassination of Megar Evers, another civil rights hero. And he famously stood up for Muhammad Ali when it was dangerous, not just um, unpopular to do so, because Ali had refused to be, yeah, drafted into the military and go fight in Vietnam. Yeah, his presence at the Cleveland summit with Ali kind of stands out as kind of that picture-perfect moment of civil rights uh, heroism. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. They include Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and former pro footballer Jimmy Brown. Right, the icons, yeah. In 1961, in a game in Kentucky, when his Boston Celtics black teammates were discriminated against in the hotel they were staying at, he led the boycott of that game. And there is just so much more here. I mean, we're just scratching the surface of the highlight reel, the montage of Bill Russell's adult life. So much of it spent at the foreground of truly seminal moments in American history. And this is the stuff that I hope, by the way, that our listeners already have some sense of. But where did you, Martenzi, want to go with this story? Like you said, I hope that people know about the 11 championships in 13 years. I hope people know about the civil rights hero section of his life. I wanted to go from the beginning. I wanted to go from his being born in Louisiana and then as a part of the Great Migration where some 6 million Black Americans 
escaped the South to look for better opportunities in other parts of the country, he ended up in West Oakland, of all places. Mm. Uh, and then when he grew older, it was time to go to college. He, you know, walked across the Bay Bridge to un- the University of San Francisco, where he pulled off one of the longest winning streaks in college basketball history. And he set the foundation for being one of the greatest winners in professional sports and one of the greatest heroes in American history. When Bill Russell passed away on July 31st of last year, I wasn't exactly sure how we as a show would ever be able to summarize everything he meant. The scope of his life is almost paralyzingly vast. I mean, Russell's name adorns the finals MVP award. He was the first black head coach in NBA history. He was this fixture, and not just in our history books in which he shaped the evolution of race relations in America, but also in the present tense, impishly giving Charles Barkley the finger on camera at an NBA awards show that one year. Among professional basketball players, I'm not sure that anybody was respected more than Bill Russell. But today, Anscape's Martenzi Johnson takes us inside the chapter of Russell's life that I did not know nearly enough about. And it's the chapter that predates and explains his unparalleled NBA career. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Tuesday, February 21st. And this is ESPN Daily. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Mortensi, I know that Bill Russell was born in 1934, but what was it actually like to be him as a little kid? How did that shape everything we would go on to understand them. Yeah, he was born in 1934 in Louisiana. Uh, And for those who aren't history buffs, that was during the time of the Jim Crow South. Even the county that he was born in had 35 lynchings in his history. Like, that's Mm. what this man was born into. Um, His father was a sharecropper, which is really a euphemism for, you know, no longer a slave. Like, he actually was paid for his work. (laughs) And he was taught by his parents two things. One being that white people were not, in fact, better than him. Uh, But then also, white supremacy and white oppression were never acceptable. So I talked to Dr. Aram Goodsusian, a history professor at the University of Memphis and author of King of the Court, Bill Russell, and the Basketball Revolution. And he told me... He really developed his ideas about how to be as a person very much so from his parents. His father, Charlie Russell, really gave him a model of manhood, so to speak. Uh, He was a man who knew how to 
draw a line uh, between himself and the indignities uh, that Jim Crow could put upon an African-American man in the South in the 1930s. Uh, he, you know, he did what he had to do to survive, but he also knew how to push back against uh, white oppression uh, when it was when his sort of dignity was at stake, when his personality was at stake. And these were a lot of the stories that Bill heard as a, as a child uh, that really influenced the kind of person that he would become. And so that is who Bill Russell was raised to be, right? And he carried those lessons over some thousands of miles away when his family landed in West Oakland in 1943 as one of the six million Black people who left the South during that time to search for better opportunities in the West or in the North. And the Great Migration, by the way, is, is I think, literally just an entire college course unto itself. But I do want to understand it insofar as the Russells leave rural Louisiana. And this is, again, as you said, the 40s, and they land in the Bay. And that sounds, on the surface, very different. But how would you describe what it was actually like at that time? Yeah, so this is around the time of World War II. There's a lot of manufacturing jobs going on. So this is where they end up landing. There's a lot of iron and steel factories, transportation and service area jobs. Uh, So there's a need for people, there's a need for jobs uh, to be worked. This leads to a drastic change in the demographics of Oakland. As we can tell in 2023, when black people start showing up, white people get out of the way. Uh, So Mm. the the high school he went to, McClyman's, uh, was primarily white when he moved there with his family. But over time, it became a majority black school and to this day is a majority black school. Um, So it was built kind of as a racial utopia, being the West, the North, anywhere but the South. But as anyone will come to learn, racism is more or less everywhere. So he really didn't escape it all that much. But where Russell landed in terms of school was in San Francisco, as you said, across the bridge. And what was that community like for him specifically? Yeah, so like you say, he went across the Bay Bridge to San Francisco at the University of San Francisco, which was a little bit more racially liberal than, you know, more parts of the country. But I wanted kind of a a firsthand recollection of what it was like. So we tracked down the last living starter from Russell's final year as a college basketball player at USF. His name's Mike Farmer. Mm. He grew up in the East Bay, so he's from the area. He went to Richmond High School. And he talked to me about how diverse the city was and how diverse really the, the program was. I visited a lot. I went to Stanford. I went down to USC. And I went over and I watched uh, USF play against Santa Clara. And I just liked the way they played. I liked the uh, black infusion because at Richmond High, uh, I was the only white uh, player on the team. So that was very comfortable for me. Yeah, and I have questions about the University of San Francisco as this institution, because I mostly know it because Bill Russell went there. But what was it like before he showed up? Not great, Pablo. Uh, (laughs) 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 The basketball team just wasn't that good, and it really wasn't all that financed. They didn't have a home gym to play or practice in. In fact, they had to practice at the local high school. We had to... uh practice at uh, St. Ignatius High School, and we had to fit in with their freshman JV, sophomore JV, and varsity teams. (laughs) They were nicknamed the Homeless Dons because of the lack of uh, practice facility and and a home arena. 
Wait, so the Homeless Dons, and that is, I think, the saddest team nickname I've ever heard. Um, the Homeless Dons welcome in the greatest winner in all of sports, Martenzi, as I understand him today. How immediate was the impact when a young Bill Russell showed up? How good was a young Bill Russell? Oh, he was cheeks. He was not good at all. Uh, (laughs) A former basketball assistant for the team said that Russell could barely make a layup. They called him gangly, uncoordinated. Uh, During his first practice, he couldn't walk and squat at the same time. They called him (laughs) fundamentally unsound. I love the idea that historians like Aram Gatsouzian verified the scouting report, too. Bill Russell was the 16th player on a 15-man JV team at McClamans High School. He was still sort of figuring out the game of basketball by the time that he graduated from high school. Uh, the most points he ever scored in a game was in, was 14 points uh, when he was a senior, and it was in his very last high school game. So Bill Russell sucks at basketball <laughs> is, is, is where we are in this story, which I did not expect to, to be discussing. But when does it get better? When does it become clear that, wait a minute, like hope is not lost with this kid? Yeah, so the foundation was always there. Like anyone who grows to be six foot ten or whatever, you're, you're an athlete, so you're going to figure it out eventually. And after his high school career, he started to get a little better. Again, he showed up USF kind of raw and uncoordinated, but they worked with him because he was just this amazing athlete. In fact, he broke the school record for the high jump, a record that still stands today. Mm. And so they kind of molded him, worked with him, basically just morphing him into shape. And it was an assistant coach, Ross Gaducci, uh, who's credited with helping him to sharpen up his defense in a way that was kind of controversial at the time. Wait, wait, what does controversial mean? What kind of methodologies, techniques are we describing here? Yeah, so basically the rule of the day at that time was you don't leave your feet on defense. Uh, You can get pump faked. uh, You can get fatigued from jumping up and down so much. Sure. And if you block a (laughs) shot, uh, you know, a la... Uh, JaVale McGee, it might just go out of bounds and the team gets the ball back anyway. <laughs> no, this is some old school shit, right? Like, do not leave your feet on defense. It's something that I imagine probably felt a little limiting to the guy who was the highest jumper in school history. Yeah, and it's a philosophy that his head coach at the time, Phil Wolpert, believed in strongly as well. Wolpert clashed with Russell all the time over Russell's defensive style. In some ways, Wolpert was, especially in those early years, Russell... Uh, was leaping to block shots, and Wolpert was still enough of a traditionalist where he was coaching him not to do that. They did not agree on this philosophy, (laughs) but I think he eventually learned that, you know, some rules are made to be broken. And in this case, you have a high jump champion who was nearly seven feet tall and, you know, let him do his thing. Yeah, it turns out uh, Bill Russell, better than JaVale McGee. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, it turns out that Bill did know what he was talking about. Uh, He averaged 19 points and 19 rebounds in his sophomore year. The team finishes second in their conference, and they win 14 games. But it's not just, like, natural ability. He somehow became a better player. He kind of went on a self-work study. Like, he just studied offensive players' moves to be in better position to guard it. He used his long arms and his leaping abilities to kind of impact offenses and defenses because he can start the fast break if he's blocking shots and stuff like that. So all in all, he he, he was more self-taught than anything else, and, and he turned out to be right. All right, Martenzi, after the break, Bill Russell sparks those dons to 
a historic winning streak. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Mertensi, now we're at the point of the story where Bill Russell is officially good at basketball. And it's 1954, and he's a junior in college, and the homeless Dons are feeling a little more confident, right? They've just come off this season before where they were second in the conference, and now, what happens? So now, to start things off, Wolpert, who was born in Los Angeles, which is a little more racially diverse than the rest of the of the rest of the country, he does the unthinkable and he starts not only Bill Russell, but also Casey Jones, who would be his teammate with the Boston Celtics a few years later, mm. and then also Hal Perry, who came in in the same freshman class as Bill Russell, and. I mean, it was unheard of to even have one black player at the time. And that was on the roster, not as a starter. And they had three black starters. And it turns out that was a pretty smart move, right? So in his <laughs> first game against Loyola Marymount, he scores a school record 39 points. Mind you, going into that season, he wasn't even considered one of the best players in the country. And he almost scores 40 right out the gate. And in the second game of the season, USF actually loses to UCLA and John Wooden. But... There is a glass half full here in that this will be the last time that the Dons would lose over the next two years. Right. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) this is the part where the streak officially begins. Because what happens from here is, um, yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. So they first just pull off 10 straight wins, uh, including a rematch with UCLA, where they do beat the Bruins this time. But it's the defense and, and Bill Russell that's that's driving this. We had the full court press on, and we overplayed everything because if they got by us, they had to deal with Russell. We would get beat, and then he would come and block a shot. I don't know how, I, they didn't keep records in on block shots, but he must have had a ton every game. They're more vertical because this man can jump out of the gym. Uh, There's more fast breaks, which is kind of brand new to to basketball (laughs) at this time. When he'd block a shot, he'd block it to one of us. 
instead of knocking it out of bounds and we get it out on the fast break. Because he'd never seen that type of play before, even to us as a teammates, uh, it was fun to watch. They're holding opponents to just 52 points a game. Like they're, they're just a monster at this point, to which they end the season on a 21 game win streak. Wait, so this team, which is a revelation, with Bill Russell pushing the break and stopping everybody who dares to attack him at a time when people are, again, afraid to jump. <laughs> like, by <laughs> by basketball coaching standards, like, they don't really jump in this game yet. So when they get into the tournament, when they get to March of Madness, this is the first NCAA tournament for Bill Russell and the Dons in 55. What's that montage like? Uh, it goes pretty well for them. Uh, he scores 29 points in the first game. He's a little limited in the second game because he's sick and only scores 13 points, but he follows that up with 29 points and 24 points. And in a championship game against LaSalle, who are the defending champions, he scores 23 points and grabs 25 rebounds. And who knows how many blocks because they just weren't counted at the time. <laughs> That's right. Also, <laughs> we should note that one of the things that Bill Russell did better than anybody else, not actually kept as a statistic at this time in terms of how ahead of the game, ahead of the curve he was in so many different ways. Yeah, according to the NCAA, Bill Russell never recorded a block in his entire life. <laughs> I'd be so mad. <laughs> And so they end the season on a 25-game winning streak. They obviously are the national champions. Um, and Russell, just through this one season, almost changes completely how the game of college basketball is played. Right. I imagine every other team is like, we need a Bill Russell. <laughs> the bad news there, of course, is that the Dons have the one and only. Oh, yeah, I, I do want to be fair to um, the blockless Bill Russell here, but the changes that he put into motion because he was in constant motion. This was a real thing. Like rules were actually legislated. Yeah. After that season, it became the Russell rules where they changed established rules in the sport just because this one man messed it all up in one season. So <laughs> one thing that they changed was the steer shot, which is basically tipping the ball back into the basket within the cylinder. So that's now offensive goaltending. So couldn't do that anymore. Right, because Bill Russell was, was, was jumping so high that he could steer the ball downward into the hoop, which everyone realized, like, that seems unfair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't just let uh, the 16 guy get away with that. Uh, the next thing was widening the lane from 6 feet to 12 feet because, again, he would just yeah. stand there and <laughs> steer the shot <laughs> into the basket uh, and then the last one, which is very, very unique, I think, to USF, was that you could no longer inbound the basketball over the basket, all because Farmer and Russell had this kind of one-two game that they would do. He and I actually worked out a plan back in that time where I would shoot the ball over the backboard on a uh, out-of-bounds, and he would grab it and dunk it. And then they changed that rule, and you couldn't take it out underneath the basket anymore. That's great. I love that. <laughs> it's hilarious that Bill Russell and this guy would just essentially put it where no one could touch it over and over again. But by the next season, it, it, the element of surprise, of course, was lost. Not only are the rules different, but everybody's expecting this, yeah, game-changing figure to be as good as anyone they've ever seen play basketball. And so how did year two go with the Dons? Yeah, in this in my story, I compare it to Rocky One and Rocky Two. Mm. In 
original Rocky, you know, he's a little buff, but like he's, you know, he's an everyday man, so he's not too cut. And then in Rocky 2, he comes back cut as hell. And that is exactly <laughs> what the Dons did. Uh, they started off the season winning their first 10 games by an average of almost 18 points. Their closest win was seven points over Marquette, and that's the closest they would come to losing until Bill Russell left the program. There's no competition for them. So with that in mind, Woolpert put them in more established, more competitive tournaments outside of the West Coast Conference, one of which was this Holiday Fest tournament at Madison Square Garden where they went up against Holy Cross, who had a star in Tom Heinzen, who would be a future teammate of Bill Russell's with the Celtics. Right. Uh, Russell scored 24 points and grabbed 22 rebounds against them. The coach from Holy Cross says it's going to be a pleasure to play Tommy Heinsohn against Russell. And we kicked their butts. So that was kind of rewarding. And and actually, Bill got a laugh out of that one. <laughs> yeah. it, it was better competition, but not that much. So by the end of January of that season, they pulled off 38 consecutive wins, <laughs> which was, at the time, one win shy of the record 39 wins in a row. But then the shenanigans started. What kind of shenanigans are we talking about as the Don and Bill Russell are on the doorstep of breaking this record? So before they got to 38 wins, it was understood that Seton Hall and Long Island University both won 39 consecutive games. And that was the record. But suddenly when the Dons got to 38 wins, now Seton Hall and Long Island University won 43 games in a row. <laughs> Wait, what? When we got out to that point, uh, yeah, you hear you heard a lot about uh, the streaks. That actually was a, a benefit for us because it gave us a challenge. And that was something that uh, we didn't have most of the year was a challenge. Now we got a goal. So the Dons were like, all right. Let's win five more. And so when they got to almost breaking that record, suddenly Kansas State Teachers College of Pittsburgh had won 47 straight games from 1929 Wait. to 1930. Wait, so just to be very blunt about this, they went back in the record books and revised, made up? How did they justify why these numbers were suddenly bigger and therefore, yeah, not quite as breakable by Bill Russell? Well, Pablo, this was the 1940s and 50s and 60s. They ain't had to justify a goddamn thing. So <laughs> they just did it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Which means I guess that they could just keep this sort of racket going for as long as they wanted to. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't say that to say that it stopped right there. Uh, the USF <laughs> broke that record and won 48 games in a row. But then out of nowhere, a school called Peru State Teachers College won 55 straight games from 1922 to 1926. I'm sorry, uh, that, that school just seems fake now. That That's just, I, I refuse to believe that's an actual school. No, man, it's the Bishop Sycamore of the 1930s. <laughs> like, this, this school didn't exist. And if they did, they were playing uh, middle school teams or something like that. This, this, is, this is fakeness. But wait, but the point is that the mark is now 55 wins. And so to get there, what do the Dons need to do? They would have to not only win out the rest of the regular season, but they would have to run the table in the tournament as well. So basically win two championships in two years. That's the only way they were going to match the record, not even break it, but match it. And the reason why the record became so contentious and all these new schools started being added, Dr. Gassouzian has a theory of why that might have been. 
part of it might have been to reflect some of the doubts about about USF that's, that were still around in the mid-1950s uh, because they played an unusual style, because their superstar was someone who, you know, people were still trying to figure out. And because they were a primarily African-American team at a time when college basketball was a predominantly white game still. And so when March of Madness starts, how good was this predominantly white game at, yes, finally figuring out how to stop Bill Russell? I can walk you through just how dominant they were. They played UCLA in the first round, beat them by 11. They played Utah in the next round, beat them by 15. They played SMU in the final four, beat them by 14. And then in championship game against Iowa, they beat them by 12 points. Uh, yeah, damn. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that's not close. <laughs> no, not at all. And Bill Russell was a big part of that. For instance, in the championship game, he had 26 points, 27 rebounds. And again, they didn't tally blocks, but let's just assume he had 10 of those too. Like it it, it was just, they were unstoppable at that point. It was just a machine. Yeah, I'm doing the math on this and they get to 55. They get to 55 by winning the championship a second year in a row. But notably, importantly, they don't break the record. At the very least, Bill Russell personally does not get to break that record. He ties it. Right. So he gets drafted by the Boston Celtics sometime after that. So he's not going to be around for that next season to see them actually break the record, which they do. They actually even push the record to 60 consecutive games won. Mm. It changes the entire trajectory of the school, starting with the fact that now they have a home gym to play in, which is called uh, War Memorial Gymnasium, which they still play in to this day. The Mm. homeless Dons were no more. He changed the entire game of basketball. It became more vertical. It became faster. It became all these things just because of Bill Russell. And Mike Farmer was there. He had a front row seat to it, and he kind of expounded on that too. I think he set the tone for uh, excellence for anybody that followed. He changed a lot of things that happened in the game. He changed a lot of the rules that uh, we uh, were used to at that time. And I think his impact showed that uh, if you work hard, you can start out as a junior uh, varsity player and a second team player in high school and end up where he ended up. No, what I'm realizing now with full clarity is that Bill Russell, as just a collegiate athlete, pretty much transformed everything. Yeah, he was he was a Hall of Fame basketball player just from the work that he did with the Dons without having set a foot in the Boston Garden, um, and Dr. Gassuzian speaks to that. Even if Bill Russell had never played a second in the NBA, he would still have had an enduring impact upon how we understand basketball. It was during his USF years that basketball really changed into what we would now think of as modern basketball. Uh, it becomes a faster sport. It becomes a more dynamic sport. It becomes a more African-American sport. And it is kind of perfect. Like, it's poetically, perfectly cruel that Bill Russell, for all of his accomplishments, was never accurately quantified, right? Like, the degree to which he was special can never actually be measured in the way that he deserved because of the way statistics were kept and because of the way that the institutions were aligned against him. And I have to imagine that when it comes to his position in history in that way, that that must have been frustrating for Bill Russell individually. Yeah, I think the only way that you can actually quantify his career, his life, anything like that, is the amount of wins that he had. And I think he understood that as well. This is a man who is a product of the Deep South. 
who is the son of a sharecropper, he knows all too well how black people can be discredited in this country. And so he took it upon himself to just win. You, you can't take wins away from people. Those are going to be in their record books forever. He even wrote in one of his memoirs that if I win every game I play, that's a fact, nobody's opinion. And so when it came to basketball, that's all he wanted to do. And he did it in college with the Dons winning two back-to-back -back championships. He did it with the Celtics winning 11 championships in 13 seasons. You can say whatever you want about Bill Russell, the man, the person, whatever it may be. But you got to call him a winner at the end of the day. Yeah, Martenzi Johnson, thank you for uh, reporting this story. No, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow.